Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. In this episode, I talk to Niall O'Connor, Chief Technology Officer of Cohere Health, about using AI to improve patient care. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH, and I'm joined today by Niall O'Connor, Chief Technology Officer of Cohere Health. How are you doing, Niall? I'm doing great, Jay. Thanks very much for having me on. No problem. And uh, we're going to talk today about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and how, you know, we can improve uh, patient care using those tools. Um, but I guess I want to start off with uh, having you sort of tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what you do with uh, with Cohere. Yeah, so uh, Cohere um, are looking to solve um, a really narrow but important problem in healthcare, um, or at least we, we set up to solve the the problem that exists between um, providers and payers. Uh, so it's a really important relationship in healthcare, and it's one that we uh, would would hope to work better. But you know, because of the history of of how our our health system has has evolved, um, we have we have a tension that exists between payers and, and physicians. That's really really not helpful uh, to providing um, you know the best of service to our patients. Um, so Cohere started looking at um, the prior authorization mechanism and uh, and wondering if we could think differently about it we you know we're not coming in to you know burn down the healthcare system and rebuild it anew we really want to take the the individual components of it and either um completely augment them with technology or um or try to just improve that experience so we looked at we looked at prior authorization first and um we saw that it's a it's a mechanism that was invented probably over about 30 years ago. Um, and it was really a, a, you know, a counterbalance to fee-for-service. And uh, we, you know, because it was created 30 years ago, it was before the internet event, it was invented, it was you know, before digitization was a, you know, a common business term. Um, and so it was a highly analog process. And even today, um, the main practice of prior authorization is, is, a, is a highly, uh, manual process. It's it's um, you know people using the phone and the fax machine to exchange really really crucial and important information. Um, and so Cohere looked at that problem. And what we we first did is how do we automate this, right? And if you to those that don't know, you know prior authorization is a mechanism where uh, payers get to assess uh, medical necessity um, of a of a request from a physician, and that seems pretty easy. But when you start to dig into medical necessity, it's a it's a, a maze of different rules that have been um, uh, created by payers um, uh, in order to uh, determine if if any given procedure in any given context is is medically necessary or not. And so what Cohere did was we we codified um, all those rules from from payers, um, so that when a physician makes a request through our through our web portal. Um, they get an instantaneous response. And so um, that's crucial because today, when a physician uh, opens a, a prior authorization request, the, the average turnaround is anywhere from seven to 14 dates, which, which you can imagine has all sorts of impacts on, on, on patient service and quality. Um, you're simply just, you know, you're delaying care with the hope that that, 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 that request goes away. Um, and so we, we've taken that that element of it out of the equation. We we turn around um, almost ninety percent of our requests instantaneously, and, and those requests never actually touch a human, um, which is which is pretty unique, I think. Um, 
the 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 other side of it is um we're able to look at at times where the the requests for care um aren't configured in a way that's optimal for patients um and this is the other element of what we we offer we're able to look at a, a given request and set it in the context of um you know the patient the patient history the patient uh context and and then determine if you know there's a there's a, a more adequate service to be provided the the canonical example i always give of this is you know a physician asks for an mri and a, a, an x-ray hasn't been done prior to that and we're able to nudge or suggest that you know an x-ray would be approved if it was done first um, and then we can talk about the MRI after the fact. So um, that's that's just two areas where A, we're able to speed up the adjudication of medical necessity determinations, and B, we're able to um, you know, course correct or, or try to um, nudge physicians back onto the optimal care path for a patient. Great, and how, I guess, how far along are, is the industry in terms of doing this? Um, you know, it sounds like, you know, we're kind of at the beginning stages of it, but, you know, how how far do we have to go to kind of get everybody on board with this kind of uh, technology? Well, um, there's, you know, the, the complete vision for Cohere isn't just kind of limited to, to this, this prior authorization mechanism. I think, you know, we're really dealing with the problem of physician burden when they're dealing with payers in general. Um, and a major impediment to that is the fact that uh, a, a huge proportion of the data that we need to, to understand what's going on with a, a given request is locked up in the, in the electronic medical record. So today, you know, the common practice is to employ, you know, humans to do what I describe as swivel chair integration, where they, they sit with one screen and they download a PDF and then they come over to our screen and they upload a PDF. And that has to be one of the most like burdensome and uh, and and kind of analog ways to transit information in in the modern world. It's really it's it's a problem unique to healthcare, and so it starts with the original information systems, right? If you look at um, all the EMRs, there was you know probably about ten years ago um, under meaningful use, there was a huge push to make EMRs um, more ubiquitous, but really it hasn't gone the next step, which is, well, how do we make these interoperable? And how do we make these open so that um, all the constituents in healthcare can utilize the data in a safe and secure way um, to, uh, to, to improve patient, uh, patient experience and patient quality? Um, so, so your question was, what do we need to do to kind of open up the entire uh, ecosystem to this is, I think a lot of it begins with the source systems for clinical information. They are often electronic medical records. And I once had a, a physician describe electronic medical records as a, uh, you know, an electronic filing cabinet. Really, it's the information in there is, while, while it's good that it's in an electronic form, so much of it is unstructured, right? So the, the, the most valuable information in healthcare is in clinical narratives that are in largely in PDFs. And so we're we're one step removed from handwritten notes here. We're yeah. you know hand typed clinical notes. <laughs> so really like it starts to begin with with trying to get a better uh, a better grab on um or a better a better handle on 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 
um, structured clinical information. Um, and so that, that, that's the major impediment for this to be, to be ubiquitous, right? Um, and, and I think if we solve that problem, we'll start to see tremendous innovation in patient care and quality um, because, because we're unlocking the, the, the raw material, the information to be able to make these more timely decisions. Gotcha. Um, and how can uh, AI and machine learning be used to improve uh, patient care pathways? Because I know that's another sort of, um, you know, uh, area of expertise for you. Yeah. yeah, so on the subject of of using AI and ML, there's a lot of fanfare about this. And I'm, I'm of the persuasion that we should uh, tread carefully here. Um, uh, you know, the team that I run is a, a machine learning group. I, I, don't, I tend not to use AI because when when we start to talk about AI, it sounds like that there's there's some other entity making the decisions. But what I want to do, I still want to use the clinical judgment of physicians, right? I don't want to to uh, supplant that. I want to I want to enhance that. Um, and so when I look at using using ML um, to to drive better um, care pathways. Um, you have to understand where the care pathways came from initially. They came from evidence-based guidelines. So, you know, in one of the organizations that we deal with, the American Association um, of Orthopedic Surgeons, so they, they, they have clinical guidelines about how, how, how care should be administered to patients. Um, that, that, is, that has been derived from both clinical practice and, you know, decades of, of research. And as a as a machine learning practitioner, I never want to, you know, like uh, dispose of that. I want to leverage that information. So it starts with these evidence-based pathways. But if you think about that, it's like that describes how do you optimally deal with the average patient? You know, how do I how do I write a guideline that you know is you know uh, covers as many patients as possible so that it's it's a valuable document. Um, and, 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 and really like, that's only part of the story. If you deal with the average patient, then you're going to exclude, um, a, a, a significant population, right? The, the, the patients at the tail end, and I'm talking about the, the rightermost tail here, where they're high acuity, they are complex patients, they have multiple comorbidities. The, that patient segment, um, I believe one of the reasons they drive such significant cost is because there isn't a care path for them, right? The average care path that's been derived from evidence-based medicine is the is a kind of simpler form, and it's not designed or, or derived for them. And so where I think the machine learning can be applied is looking at that population of, of complexity and high acuity and understanding what was it that that drove them to to have such high costs or high uh, high number of uh, high utilization of care, um, and and you know in some sense it's 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 intuitive, right? A patient who is morbidly obese has diabetes and hypertension. It's just going to be harder to treat than someone who does not, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah. I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you from data you can look and you can find patients that have those comorbidities um, that have had a positive outcome in healthcare and have had a low cost or at least a median cost um, of, of a care delivery. And so what I wanna do is look at, the, look at the, the, the extreme ends of the scale 
find the patient characteristics that um, uh, that are in that population, and then look at the overall population. And it was like, was there similar patients that didn't have this adverse outcome where they had, you know, a hospital acquired infection and they had, you know, significant follow up costs? Um, because because that's where the secret lies. Like there is there is some combination of services and clinicians that manage to treat highly highly complex patients without incurring all the costs. And I think I want to learn from that. And that's that's why in some sense it's machine learning. We're looking at we're using tools of machine learning to to filter and uh, describe data so that we can find commonalities um, and controlling for costs. Right. Um. So. Do you think that um, you know we should update or revise uh, evidence-based guidelines to kind of reflect you know those those ends of the scale to to better provide care? Well, I think combinatorially, it's going to be very uh, expensive to to continually update the guidelines for every single combination of comorbidities at the tail end. Mm -hmm. um, I think there there definitely will be some high level cohorts right uh, that come out of this that we probably should recharacterize in guidelines right um but essentially you know where we're going i think as an industry and and in the past i worked in personalized medicine and i see this being and that was largely in oncology but i see that pattern playing out in other in other indications is that there's going to be a care path for every patient right um, and it's going to be unique to every patient. And it, 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 it exists to some extent today because, you know, me and you may have identical ailments, but we're going to see a, a different set of providers, maybe based on geography, maybe based on in-network, out-of-network coverage. But we're going to, we're going to chart a, a different care journey. Um, and what I want to try and use machine learning to derive is, is what is that optimal configuration of care for every unique individual um, and that's why we need to use machines to do this right like the, the, when i'm when i'm talking about the common uh, like we're talking about you know more stars in the galaxy than than the, the amount of different configurations of care that we could imagine even in the u.s healthcare system right so it's it's combinatorially just a very large problem or a large number to solve here and that's why we need to use machines to help us help us guide this um and speaking of machine learning, how can you use it to address patient needs and detect conditions? Well, I, think we, I think we need to be careful there, right? So um, remember, the the models that we develop are only as um, as unbiased as the data that we have, and we know there's a lot of problems in in the healthcare system with with bias and um, and unconscious bias in so many scenarios, right? And so, using machine learning, you know, blindly to detect conditions is I would I would I would uh, I would argue we should be cautious about doing that. Um, and as well, addressing patient needs. If to do it blindly without without you know supervision of clinicians is 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 um, is not a good idea. I think there are some there are some areas where this is definitely um, uh, you know additive, right? So if you think about and this is already common practice, um, we use a lot of machine vision uh, algorithms uh, for um, radiology assessments. So uh, you know in the course of a radiology assessment, they're often audited or 
or for quality purposes, they're, they're reviewed um, by a second um, radiologist. Um, you know, a hospital network doesn't get any more money for doing the quality um, uh, readout uh, on, these, on these radiology assessments. Um, so uh, having machines to help with, with uh, quality assessments, I think is a great, a great area. Secondarily, um, again, in, in radiology, you know, you might go in for a, you know, an ailment like pneumonia. And on the, on the, on the, on the CT scan, you might find um, a tumor. But if the radiologist is only looking to confirm um, pneumonia, they may not be kind of mindful or paying attention to, to other, other pathologies that might be on that image. And, but, you know, here's an area where, where machine vision can prompt and alert the physician to, to draw their attention over here. So it's really like it's, a, it's, a, it's augmenting the, the physician, not replacing them. And I think that's, that's crucial that we must, we must kind of um, talk about in healthcare. It's, it's all about, um, you know, machine-aided medicine rather than machine-driven medicine, right? It's like it's, it's a human must be in the loop um, to, to, to make clinical decisions, I, I feel firmly about. But I think we can, we can, we can basically have better physicians with the, with the aid of, of machine vision and, and other ML tools, um, like reading notes and things like that. Um, have you seen resistance among clinicians uh, to use these tools? Well, from a cohere perspective, a lot of this is transparent, right? Um, so we're not, it's not, um, it's not abundantly obvious to the physician that a machine learning algorithm is, is running um, as part of the decision making here. Um, uh, so, uh, so we haven't in, in, in that sense externally. I think internally people often ask, like we, we use, we use, uh, you know, natural language processing in a lot of um, note review. And, and I think naturally, when I start talking as a, you know, as a, as an engineer about the possibilities of how we can, you know, make everyone's life easier, you know, if you're, if you're involved in doing clinical review, you may feel a bit threatened and saying like, well, what am I doing then? And, and I think, I think really when, when, when we do produce, uh, you know, products that have uh, integrated machine learning into them, People see that it's it's really just making them more efficient rather than replacing them, and I think that's 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 the message that I keep um, keep pursuing. Um, you know, if you if you think about it, it's you know, as a human, to review a two hundred page clinical note um, is quite burdensome and it's quite tiresome. Um, and if if you can have a you know a natural language processing engine sit on top of that and highlight the sections that may be relevant to you. Um, or looking for key um, key factors that will help you complete the review quicker. I think people are pretty welcoming of that rather than resistant. Um, you mentioned uh, natural language processing. How can you use that and social determinants of health data, um, you know, as part of a way to you know to to determine what challenges patients face and find solutions for those. Yeah, so with SQH, you know, I often find, you know, while there are like some questionnaires out there and some structured uh, uh, kind of features that exist, um, it's 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 a, a lot of the of the time um, 
those those issues of say housing security or care or even food insecurity um or or just even like access to to clinicians um those there's no you know field in the emr that says um you know is the patient does the patient have their own car or transport to the clinic or you know does the patient have food security um so it's not as if that this this piece of information is going to be readily available in a structured way that we can just plug into an algorithm and move on with our lives um instead it's talked about um in subtle terms in in clinician notes right in the in the uh, clinician narratives um you might you might have uh you know uh you know evidence that the, the, you know due to an injury the person has lost their their employment um and and that's a concern of the patient that the the physician will will know it also like speaks to you know recovery right if, if you've recovered from injury and you've returned to employment that's also like a good sign for us as as you know uh, people who are managing care um so so looking out using natural language processing you can you can train around keywords it's not only keywords obviously because that's there's nothing nothing interesting about that but it's context dependent and that's what natural language processing allows you to do um you know you can you can find um certain phrases like long run phrases or you can assess the sentiment of a particular phrase um a lot more readily than you can if you're if you're trying to program this deterministically um so that's there's just some of the examples of how you can you can start to understand the the, the social context of that patient rather than just um, relying on on kind of like very structured questionnaires. Mm -hmm. um, what's the future going to look like for using machine learning in healthcare? Say you know five, ten, fifteen years down the road. Like what you know? Obviously, you know you've outlined kind of ways that you know we can help optimize sort of you know the delivery of care now. But you know what do you think can happen as we make more technological advances? Yeah, I think. I think we need, as, a, as an industry, we need to walk before we can run, certainly here. Um, you know, at, at, the, at the start of this uh, conversation, I mentioned how one of our biggest problems is just getting access to the right data in a safe and secure manner. Um, that has huge impacts on what types of models we can create after the fact, right? So um, when I look at healthcare in general, from a technology perspective, you know, we, you know, we are, behind by probably a decade of other industries. Um, uh, and so, so, you know, let's, let's be modest about our expectation of what machine learning can do for us in, in five to 10 years. Um, but really what I, what I'm, what I'm hoping is that, you know, so in, in advertising today, for example, we can, we can target ads with incredible specificity, right? You can target it down to, you know what type of cereal you like to enjoy mm -hmm. or what football team you follow um, in 10 years i would hope that we can target um drugs in the same way that we know you know if you look in oncology for example um the the variants uh, the molecular variants in your tumor are very uh, uh very indicative of if you're going to be a candidate for a particular drug and and being able to understand those incredibly specific variables about a patient and being able to target the right treatment, whether it's a drug or a series of physical therapy or 
certain configuration of surgery and, and, and conservative care, um, they are the things that I want to be able to target at people rather than annoying ads. You know, so that's that's kind of where I see it see it going. Really, I mean, that's more of an aspirational hope. Uh, but as an industry, we need to solve the first problem, which is just basic um, basic interoperability between the different constituents in healthcare, and especially in digital healthcare, um, uh, and get and getting access to the to the raw material that will allow us to build better and better models in the future. How long do you think it'll take to to get that sort of ideal op interoperability um, going? I mean, I know it's been a big buzzword for the last couple of years, and obviously, uh, you know, we've got a lot of, I guess, almost an uneven playing field, you know, depending on who you talk to. But, um, you know, obviously, you know, we need to kind of get everything sort of working together better before, like you said, we can we can do these advances. You know, how long do you think that'll take? I mean, not to not to uh, give you have you have a crystal ball here, but uh, but what are your thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I think I think the direction that the government have taken uh, with some of the the more recent CMS rules is definitely helpful. Um, I think I think the the key constituent that can unlock this is patients, right? Um, enabling patients to consent for the um, acquisition of their data and transfer their data in the in the in the ecosystem of healthcare, I think, is probably the most efficient way that we can we can go about it. So CMS has has made some uh, recent rules regarding um, the ability for uh, patients to request data from from uh, payers uh, and be able to move that data between payers. And I think that's 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 a good start. I think the same thing has to be done for providers. Um, payers are in a better position to be able to facilitate that because um, they're typically larger and financially um, financially sound uh, you know companies providers it's it's challenging for small providers to be able to to share data in a, in a very systematic and safe way um, but I think ultimately that that's the direction it has to go and when I say providers I'm implicitly saying the the um, the EHR companies that that mm. that you know, provide their services to providers. So I, I like the direction that we can empower patients to be advocates here, um, because I think great things happen when patients are are able to advocate for themselves. Um, and then patients can choose where their data is going and how it's being used, um, because that's certainly not the the way it happens today. I think a lot of the large entities in healthcare can, can decide the flow of patient data um, rather than the patients themselves. So I, I like the approach that CMS have taken on this. And and to say how long it's going to take, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the things move slowly in, in, in healthcare in this regard. But I think once we have some empowered patients, I think uh, it's impossible to ignore that those, those cries. Definitely. Well, fascinating stuff. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Great. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. That wraps up episode 30 of PSQH the podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you join me next time. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again and stay safe.